everybody and welcome to Magic by Design. If this is your first time joining us, first of all, welcome. Thanks so much for tuning in. Magic by Design is a podcast in which we are aiming to watch and review every Disney animated feature film. Each and every week we break down a movie from the Disney canon in an attempt to discover the secrets behind the magic. We watched Disney's 24th animated feature this week, The Fox and the Hound. But before I relive one of my earliest childhood traumas, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Ken, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host slash brother. We're the best of friends, Garrett. Garrett, how are you? First of all, it must be noted, you just did the intro in one take. Yeah. Which is very uncanny. I'm very proud of myself. Good job. And Switched on today. It's a thing that listeners will never notice, because you always edit it. But you did it in one take, and I think you should be rewarded for such a thing. Give myself a pat on the back there. People say I'm mean on podcasts, and all I do is bury my podcast co-hosts. I'm very nice and supportive, I'll have you know. Yeah, this is uh, the first time you've complimented me on the podcast. <laughs> and, and second of all, did you know Bassetowns have long ears to waft the scent into their nose? I did not. There's a fun Bassetown fact for you. Is a Basset Hound and a Bloodhound the same thing? I I think it's different, doesn't it? I think they're different. I don't think bloodhounds had the long ears. Did they not? Uh, I'm now looking at a list of Bassetown fun facts. I knew the, the ears fun fact, but I've since Googled Bassetown fun facts. Uh, Bassetowns are great at scent work. Of course, this film is entirely based around that. Bassetowns are intelligent and independent, even bordering on stubborn. Again, true to this, you know? Yeah, that's, they really that's... did their research here. Bassetowns have loud voices. Eh, it's copper loud. Copper is quite soft-spoken, I would say. Yeah. Bassetowns have more bones per pound than any other dog. That's because they're quite compact, isn't it? Very bony dog. Why they have ruffled heads. <laughs> oh, he's so cute. Copper's cute. That's my first take. Basset hounds can be prone to glaucoma, thrombothia, and bloat. That's mm. They're highly social, again, you know. Especially with foxes, apparently. Basset hounds' droopy ears and eyes should be regularly cleaned. I think that's true of all dogs. Basset hounds should be kept in a fenced secure area. Does a barrel count as a fenced secure area? Well, he was tied to it, so maybe. They apparently don't make a good, good guard dogs. That's why you have, um, what's the name of the old dog? Chief. Chief, there you go. That's what, Chief is the guard dog. And then Basset Hound's spines are prone to damage. Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could damage my spine if I fell down. I could damage my spine just standing up. Never mind it with, like, blood force impact. We're getting into winter now, Gar, and that's Chief falling time. Ah, yes. The ice. Chief there. Yeah, very good. But in fairness, you don't have to commute you don't have to go anywhere anymore that's true i remember during last winter i was walking to work and like there's an entrance to the school nearby our house and i stopped for a second to let cars pass and then i knew it was like oh god game over this is an icy patch and i like legs up in the air total like pratfall <laughs> was there people there to laugh at you no uh but I felt very embarrassed nonetheless did you get hurt i was okay Aww. my back was a bit sore i mean oh good yes it's happy that you're fine. You started so well. And now I'm gleefully looking forward to your pain. Yeah, so we don't have to leave the house in winter. We can just hole up inside for the whole six months. We yeah. can pass it by montage like this film does. This is one of the unexpected benefits of working from home. Less chance of falling. Wouldn't you love to be able to like hit a button and like, you know, I don't really want to do the next three months. And like a film, you can just do like montage. Yeah. <laughs> Which for me, a montage would be like sitting at my computer typing, doing a podcast. Week is over. <laughs> For the variety of things I do in a week. Sitting at my computer, binge eating, sleeping, crying. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I, I thought about that recently. I thought about that recently. I think I kind of like, if there was an option to freeze myself until this is over, yes. and I come out, and then like 
try and catch up on how it went and what happened. What if it gets worse from here, though? What if these are the good times? Yeah, what if, they, what if they never wake me up? Yeah, what if it just keeps getting worse exponentially until the Earth explodes from one of the various ways in which the Earth can currently explode? Yeah, I think it's exploding figuratively at the moment, but there's a very good chance it could actually explode in the future. Yes, well, it will. There's the heat death of the universe. We'll all die eventually. It's inevitable. Do you think we're the first universe? No. The first incarnation of this? No. I had a theory when I was in school and I said it to my geography teacher and I could see the existential dread on her face as I said it. I was like... Who was your geography teacher? Uh, Mrs. Scannell. Oh, yes. You're not a fan. Me and Mrs. Scannell had some great times. You had a, a feud going at yes, one stage? a very long feud. I feel bad somewhat because like you know eventually you reach the stage of self-reflection where you can realize you were a bit of a runt and terrible and awful and annoying but i will always insist she started it you just finished it. i just finished it but she did start it i remember i think it was second class so i would have been about 14 or second, second year. year sorry second class would have been like eight but uh i said to her sorry so i said to her who's to say that this is the first cycle of this universe yeah we could have blown up a couple times now yeah then it comes back to the start then there's another big bang and we start all over again yeah we all die and everything Everything is like, oh no, and then it all starts again, and then we do this all over again. Or we're just a simulation, and we're being run like the third or fourth time. I wonder, did we have a podcast in all forms of these simulations? But did podcasts exist in all four? Were we brothers in all four? Well, might not even happen. We were the best of friends. I yeah. love that song. It's, just, it's clearly wormed its way into your head. It should be a Randy Newman song. Yeah. It does have a very Randy Newman-esque feel to it. It's like, we're the best of friends. It's like, it's basically... Ivories. Yeah, it's basically like a prequel to You've Got a Friend in Me. You've Pretty Got much. a Friend in Me basically ripped it off. I think, yeah. You've a good Got call. a Friend in Me. We're the best of friends. Same song. It fits. It's, it, it's literally, it's the same song. So let's dive in here, Gar. Have you seen the film before? No, we're still in the... St- like, I have now increasingly realised, like, of the... What are we on, 24? 24. Of the 24 films that we have watched so far, I've seen exactly none of them. At least in their entirety. I've probably seen little bits here and there of all of them, or not all of them, of many of them. But I've not seen any of these films in their entirety, which is quite remarkable. This was a firm favourite as a kid, but I must admit, I haven't watched it in years. I had kind of a strange relationship with this film back in the day. In Did that, that scare I, you? In that I loved it. It didn't scare me, but I dreaded watching it because I found the ending so desperately sad as a kid. Because they're... Well, he falls in love. It was a film of two halves for me. I, I love the first half. With, with the best of friends. We're getting to know these lovable characters, and but all the while knowing that the second half is coming leading to this feeling of tension and anxiety people get hit by trains yeah all the drama it's a good time this would become a trend for me in the upcoming films Gar. as you know i was a bit of a crier you and you're hiding behind the couch during beauty and the beast especially in the 90s gar in my defense disney went for the gut punch several times during the, the coming years it was pretty much in their playbook for every film like the first thing that happens in this film is todd's mom gets offed yeah this is full in the full period of parents die all the parents die. Every parent gets killed. And it's it's an interesting narrative device that they use over and over again. And I, I guess it creates like uh, a, a, a room, room to grow for a character and creates uncertainty for a character and creates a world in which they cannot be comfortable and familiar, which is a world that challenges them, which in theory should be a world that is interesting to watch them navigate. Uh, so it, that's I, I, I think that's why they usually do it, because a, a world where people grow up with their parents and have happy, well-adjusted lives don't generally make for particularly good films. So what you're saying is it's kind of an easy in for the hero's journey it is an easy in for the hero's journey it immediately puts them behind the eight ball good call production began on the fox and the hound in 1977 the film marked the last involvement of the remaining members of disney's nine old men as after that the development was handed over to a new generation of animators well, that happened during this film really yeah didn't it? so it was like a film 
again, a film of two halves because the older animators initiated the project, but then they all retired or left and handed over to a new generation. I wonder, like, you see this in the animation, and I'm not sure is this, like, a, a, a consequence of how it's been converted through the years, or is it just a weird thing about the way that it was animated in the first place? But there are, like, certain scenes and frames that are extremely, like, low resolution. Yeah, almost blurry, I, was, I would have commented yesterday. Yeah, the, the colour looks washed out, it looks blurry, it's very strange. And like, sometimes it's literally, like, back-to-back within a scene, where one one frame will look fine and full of colour and, and detail, and then the next one will look, like, blurry and weirdly off. And as I said, I'm not sure is that a consequence of maybe it was converted through different formats and done so badly, because on the Disney Plus version, it is neither 4x3 nor widescreen. So I have no idea what it's meant to be, or no idea it was what it was released in. But the Disney Plus version is neither, because it has some, like, smaller black bars on the side of the screen. So I have no idea what it's meant to be. So maybe it is a, a weird consequence of being converted through different formats and kind of torn apart a little too much. Or maybe it is just some weird quirk of the original animation. Because it's, I would have said it's the first film we've watched it's been like that like some of the films have had bad animation I've i'm noticed, looking at you aristocats uh, yeah i've noticed i've noticed yeah we've, we've seen the bad animation in, in the recent films i've noticed that blurriness in other films so maybe it is an aspect ratio thing yeah or, or just a conversion to digital or conversion through these various different formats in which they've been released through the years in whichever version that's gone up i don't know maybe we'll ask disney disney clarify for me why is it looking a little blurry the answer is not forthcoming, so we'll move on. The film- you expected Disney to drop it in the middle of the podcast? I don't know. They can hear us. They're everywhere, as D- we know. Disney probably do have our microphone mic'd. Can you mic a microphone? I guess. Bug, you mean? Yeah, same thing. You said they mic'd our mic. Yeah. Made what no do you sense. think a bug is? It's a microphone. No, it's not. Is it? Yes. I suppose so. It's a small recording device. <laughs> what did you think a bug was? I don't know, like a... Digital thing, like a, a digital like a recording device. Yes, they okay. are tiny microphones. Ken, I, I retract my statement. All right. The film's release was delayed by over six months following the abrupt departure of Don Bluth and his team of animators. They left to found his own studio. Is uh, he any relation to the Bluth family from Arrested Development? Uh, no. Okay. But his company uh, rose meteorically, only to crash and burn. So the the narrative is similar. Ah, there you go, Gene. Um, what Don- did, did he make anything? They'd be known for the films like. All Dogs Go to Heaven, ah. The Secret of Niv. They also did things like, I think they did The Land Before Time. Ah, there we go. A beloved film of my childhood that I actually don't remember anything about. I should rewatch that. What's interesting as well, the last big film they did was Anastasia, which was uh, released in around 98, 99. And a lot of, no, actually, I think they did one, one more after that, but it was the last successful one they did. And the funny thing is, a lot of people think that's a Disney film. But I thought you, it was a Disney film, so yeah, there you go. It makes sense because the DNA of their films shares a lot of similarities because he worked at the studio and the style of their films was developed in Disney. And it's interesting how Disney would probably slightly leave that style behind so that then they would carry forward that uh, torch of old school Disney animation. The Fox and the Hound was eventually released in theatres in July 1981. It was initially received with mixed reviews from critics, though it was a moderate success at the box office. The critics praised the animation and voice acting of the film, but believed that the film was not groundbreaking enough. I thought it was a step forward. Not so much like they didn't break new ground, but it was a step forward from the last two decades. Over time, however, the film has become known as a Disney classic. 
At the time of its release, it was the most expensive animated film ever produced, costing 12 million. I think this is not necessarily a reflection of the production, but likely the increasing inflation and climbing Hollywood production costs in general. Yeah. Films are just more expensive to make. And, and eventually they lower. completely gave up on it. Of course, it's not to be confused with the with the Fox and the Crow, which is a children's poem, no. which I once performed in Fetch Matthew. And it was, I believe that's the year we won. You won the trophy, yeah. Yeah. So. Took home the W. And then the next year I had like a solo line and we came last so work yeah. that out for yourself the fesh matthew is a competition that's a tradition here in cork where we live and people perform songs and orations and poems and schools participate every year i have a theory that everyone gets a turn with that trophy to be honest do you think so because we did you know, we did go from you I went think from we being finished. the champs to last it doesn't yeah, make sense yeah and i don't think we got that much dramatically worse but maybe we did maybe it was solely my i'll drag you out of bed by the hair i remember the line even though it's been like 15 years do you think you flew too close to the sun uh, perhaps we got, got complacent burned down because I think we might have finished like second or third the year before which was pretty solid we got pizza when we won which was nice free pizza is always go. good winning poetry comp did you ever enter Fresh Matthew we were supposed to but we were, couldn't get our, our stuff together nah we were Miss Cooney was like nah nah Regina shot you down you're we, not good enough we didn't take it seriously random people getting shout outs on this podcast so this film is kind of fraught in a sense because there's an internal struggle between the way things had always been done and new ideas is. the new animators are striving for a more serious form of art and storytelling where the older guys they, they do see it as an art form but what they're really going for is kind of children's entertainment and slapstick and well like, to be fair and i think i would commend most of these i can pretty much all of these disney films for is they're never like lowest common denominator lazy children's entertainment and, and like the kind of children's animation we would have seen in like the 2000s that emerged that are just like pop culture references bright colors uh loud music a dance number you know all the tropes that made like trolls you know all the tropes that make up these kind of films celebrities doing voices especially yeah. popular pop artists like the, none of these films that we've watched have been that at any stage whatsoever it has not devolved into that kind of like just brainless cynical attempt at producing children's entertainment with no worth or value like all of these films at least are trying to tell an interesting story they some may fail but like all of them are trying and uh, uh, like uh, maybe it's the DreamWorks era that kind of kicked in like uh like Shrek I think is a very good film but I think films that Shrek inspired uh, tend to be a less, in- a less interesting and maybe some of the DreamWorks films made after Shrek tend to be a lot less interesting yeah maybe the intent was still there but the ideas were just kind of past their sell-by date I guess and like everyone everyone runs out of ideas you can't keep making films until the end of time because nobody has that many ideas and the few people that do are genius savants who keep making masterpieces but even like Steven Spielberg doesn't write all his own films you know no, he, he his skill is in choosing the projects and the people. And that, navigating them to a, a good, successful end. He has an eye for how to make something, which is an equally valid skill set. But he doesn't necessarily have to come up with all the creative ideas. And in fairness, neither did Disney, because they adapted the hell out of everything under the sun. To and any time they tried not to, it was a disaster. It was something of a disaster. Aristocats. I'm going to bury Aristocats until the end of time. Still rock bottom of your list, Gar. Far and away. Like, you, you go back and listen to the Saludos Amigos episode now. Much. I did not like that film. And then think about, I put Aristocats lower than that film. <laughs> think about that. But yeah, I, I, like it is, it is actually something I was thinking about yesterday about how I really do admire that these 
these films never became like cynical like just churn it out slap some bright colours in there everyone's happy kind of children's entertainment and maybe maybe children were better off for that that they had these kind of but we've had Pixar films this entire time so it's not like we've had a, a dearth of quality children's entertainment over the last decade and we've had some of the best children's television of all time over the last decade I think everyone views their generation with like certain things that are like bad and certain things that are great and generations back then would have seen things that are new as threatening and I suppose yeah that's I suppose Disney Disney was becoming more of a company in this time a corporation so like especially when like Walt Disney dies yeah. and then it is like, fair enough like the Disney family are still involved yeah. but like the creative driving force the creative genius behind it if you will uh, it's gone so yeah. at that stage it is a corporation it is a for profit corporation producing entertainment for money and they're very reluctant to stray from the playbook that brought them to the dance and like that is not to say that these things are not of artistic merit that is not to say that these things are purely cynical cash-ins it is just simply to say that the bottom line here is to get people in the door pretty much which like there's nothing wrong with the people would get very cynical about that the, the people are like oh it's ruining art it's like there's lots of art that you love that would never have been made were someone not bankrolling it so but Disney does fund art because a lot of their they have an animation program to younger animators are given resources and time and money to make shorts and that's how they kind of develop their people so it does exist but they invest in art when the stakes are lower when when there's shareholders as you said and money on the line Disney just cannot accept failure that's a symptom of the juggernaut that they've become if you look at like uh, we talked about um the, the live action wing of the company like one failure you're gone John Carter there was Lone Ranger you, you, you can't even flop once it's considered unacceptable and so those two films we talked about before basically killed live action at Disney they don't make them anymore not original ones anyway they, they make Marvel films they make Star Wars films and then they might make the weird, the odd weird film like that um, Harrison Ford and a Wolf film that was a Disney film wasn't it yeah, it was uh, Fox so they, they own it now but yeah that's on Disney so I assume that that's a Disney distributed film anyway uh, so th- there's some odds and ends that they'll support even but, then that's a remake though yeah but for the most part this idea of like big ambitious uh, original uh, live action is gone because John Carter flopped and The Lone Ranger flopped. Oh, we watched that recently. I will stand by The Lone Ranger being a good film. Other than the cultural appropriation. Well, you know. <laughs> Other than the, this film may contain outdated cultural depictions. Maybe. A film from 2011 or whenever that was out. As we said, Garrett, the animation is a market improvement from the sketchy style that we've had in recent times. Those heavy lines are gone. The transitions are smoother. We're, we're seeing colours and outlines that are more crisp and fluid. A return to that customized palettes rather than everything just has that black outline because it's xeroxed yeah so everyone has everyone looks natural in the environment instead of just like here's our uniform template for this thing and as i said we can see why because the animation for this one was turned over mid-production to a generation of directors and animators which included john lasseter john musker ron clements who most recently teamed up to moana they did a lot of the really successful films in the 90s glenn Keane. fun fact tim burton worked on this film there you go Brad Burge Henry Selleck Chris Buck Mike Gabriel and Mark Tindall all of whom all of whom would finalise the animation and complete the film's production these animators had moved through the in-house animation training programme at Disney and would play an important role in the Disney renaissance of the late 80s and early 90s not just Disney well the entire 90s yeah the entire animation renaissance of the 90s it's a who's who of current Disney stalwarts they're they're the new old men if you think about it and not even just Disney it's like Pixar and like Iron Giant was 
Warner Brothers? Warner, yeah. Yeah, Which is a Brad Bird joint. Brad Bird has always been kind of a freelancer, so he's most associated with Pixar, but he's kind of weaved in in and out of other areas. So you can see that this generation is the generation that produced pretty much most of the films you love over the last 20, 30 years. So it's weird because it's not a, a, it's not an entire film that's a departure point like the the end of one era and the beginning of another. It's almost like a halfway split down the middle because you can almost tell which parts were done by the older animators and which were done by the new. Can someone say a fox the fox and the hound is a metaphor for the two sides of Disney coming together to pass the torch to one another? The foxes of the old generation and the hounds of the new generation coming together to learn from one another, to appreciate each other, and then ultimately to go their separate ways in the end, but appreciate the experiences they had and go on to live happy, productive lives afterward. That's a lovely segue, Gar, but they clashed at every turn. Don't you worry about it, it's fine. (laughs) This film is based on the award-winning 1967 novel of the same name by American novelist. An American book? Yeah. My God. It's by Daniel P. Mannix. It's it's a revolution, and it wasn't bad, so there you go. American art is finally coming good. It only took until the end of the 60s. Todd and Copper struggle to preserve their friendship despite their emerging instincts and surrounding social pressures demanding them to be adversaries. That's the, the crux of the story. It's interesting. Like The point of this story is two people who are utterly unlike and should not get along with each other do in fact get along with each other despite the societal pressures on top of them that should drive them apart. And like, would people cancel this film for being political in 2020? I think <laughs> Racism it, is bad is basically the moral of this film. I think there'd be two camps. There'd be like, that's just PC gone wrong and it's teaching kids to be sissies and all this. And then there'd be people who kind of hold it up as an example of how we should move forward, that nobody is born with hatred and that you know we learn those behaviors and we're taught them or societal structure forces these points of view on us instead of us forming our own opinions about people and societies so it's interesting like people would legitimately there would be some people who would push back on this for being political and this is from 1979 81 81 there you go i know my years 1981 like back then we were like and this is like disney mass marketed entertainment with a, a broad message of racism is bad you know people from different camps can come together get along and live happy, productive lives together. Take people for face value for who they are rather than what they are or where they came from. Yes. Do not hold discrimination against groups of people because of who they are or where they come from. You can be friends. Best friends, in fact. Pretty deep. And sometimes save each other from bears. It's not even pretty deep, though. Like, that's a... That's a simple basic moral for a film, you know? It's a human principle, yeah. Get along, everybody likes each other, there's no reason to hate each other. But, like, just the idea that that kind of message in 2020 would probably be, like, divisive is kind of depressing. And it actually shows how little people learn from these films. Like, the same people who would probably be racist would be the same people who would be like, Oh, I love the fox and the hound, you know? It's like, you missed the entire core message of this film. But where, you know, where it differs is, like, people who sympathise with... Todd and the widow who say that tolerance and acceptance and you know kindness and love is the way forward rather than yeah that fox is trying to he's mess a menace. things up he's messing things up he's on his land he should have the right to shoot him foxes have no business in this kind of place yeah. suburbs Something like that. That's what Trump would say. And then it's like Copper's a sissy he needs to toughen up and start hating the foxes. Yeah. Or blacks. Well can. Sorry. It was it was there, it was on the table. Mickey Rooney played adult Todd and Kurt Russell played Copper. I don't like either of the adult voices, I have to say. I love, too old. I love the kid voices. The kid voices are so like dumb and kiddish. I really like them. And like at the very end of the film they play like, We'll be best friends forever, right, uh, Copper? Yeah, Todd. And then like the yeah Todd delivery is like, ah, it's so kid like, it's great. Yeah, it's so natural. Uh, it's actually a young Corey Feldman that played young Copper. There you go now. Who would rise to prominence in the 
late 80s as a teen star. Mm-hmm. He's not really in the mix these days, but, you know, he did this A few film. teen stars are. Yeah, so... Unless you're Matthew Broderick. Yeah, like, the... The early part of the film is probably my favourite because it just feels so natural. As like you said, the wholesome. performances and wholesome and it just feels so... It's like a, a, a film hug. It does start very like bleak and foreboding. That intro is like sad and like not much music to it. And fair enough, it leads to the death of his mother so or father. I'm not sure it did this. Mother. Way. Mother. Uh, so so like it is leading to something like bad. So the, the foreboding sense is, is natural there. But it's like, oh no, what are we watching? It's very depressing. And there's some like orchestral score, which is quite cool. I don't think there's a ton. Obviously Fantasia has an orchestral score, but I don't think there's a, a ton of orchestral scores in these films. No, it was very noticeable. So I think this was the first one in a while, at least. But in terms of the recording quality, it was probably on a, a par higher than anything that's been produced to date. Yeah, and it meant like maybe I don't think the whole film was orchestral, but certainly that opening track was. Yeah, like there's a full on orchestral. They were like, let's go for it. I'm stealing one of Nicole's fun facts from later, but it was produced by a 51 piece orchestra. There you go, and you can tell, you can hear it. I love when you can hear an orchestra, and sometimes it doesn't even fit. But it's like, ah, oh, it's an orchestra. Go for it. Yeah, it, it kind of raises the blood in a way that a normal soundtrack doesn't. But yeah, that whole that whole intro sets the tone for like a bleak, somber film, and the film isn't really that. That's what I like about it. It has its moments of what you might call bleakness or, or things that make you reflect and sad, but it it has a nice pace to it then it kind of brings you up and brings you down so it's a kind of a, a nice ride rather than being too bleak in, uh, in long stretches or too inconsequential and happy in other places it is well balanced yes I'd agree with that the young bloods and the old guard clashed over the story in a couple of places concerns were raised over the handling of the scene in which Chief is hit by a train which was controversially changed from his death into a non-fatal injury in which he merely suffered a broken leg this resulted in a fight among the young animals who favoured Chief dying to act as motivation for Copper hating Todd and the older animators who were hesitant to kill off a main character because it had never been done to date. Have those, have those animators seen Bambi? Yeah. In which a major character is killed off? A major character? I wouldn't call her a main character. because She is the main character. She's she, the mother of the freaking protagonist. She's there to do some heavy lifting to set the story. But, but would you say so the Chief is more of a main character than Bambi's mom? Uh, no! That's true. Senior animators pulled rank and they eventually won. Another fight erupted when Reitherman, who's famous for the a lot of the recent films, uh, in thinking that the film lacked a strong second act, decided to add a musical sequence of two swooping cranes voiced by Phil Harris and Charo, who's a famous Spanish singer, I think. There you go. Who would sing a silly song entitled Scooby Dooby Dooby Doo, Let Your Body Turn Coo? Thankfully that got caught. To Todd after he's dropped in the forest when the the widow takes him. Scooby-dooby-dooby-doo. So Drop yourself in goo. I've got some work to do. <laughs> Young animators argued that it was a distraction from the story and it was ultimately cut. They're, they're really doing Phil Harris dirty in the last few films. They've cut him from the last two. Poor guy. After he drove a lot of their successful films in the, the 60s and 70s. Todd's bomb gar, as we said, got the Bambi treatment. So yes. th- th- there are similarities to Bambi here again. It's like, uh, and Gar, we, you know, we've talked about this. That Bambi is almost like the template for what a great Disney film is. So I'm not surprised that they're, they're using that as their their the, north star as such. So you're going for a modern because it's, it's weird to think going for a modern back because this film was like released 30 years after Bambi. Like that's longer than I've been alive. So when you think of when it, it's weird to like put the, think of this film as trying to do something Bambi because we're watching them week to week, so we don't like feel the time difference between them. But like this film is 30 
basically years apart from Bambi. So it, it's very easy to think these are the people who grew up watching Bambi, wanting to make something inspired by Bambi, and then maybe the people who helped make Bambi. Though, yeah, some of those people would have been involved pushing back on it, being like, no, we can't do that. It's like, you did it in the freaking 50s. It's like, oh, no, sorry. <laughs> Can you mention it there? Copper and Todd, there's a line at the start of the movie going, we'll be friends forever, won't we? That, that, that was a major foreshadowing. I just thought that was a, a very funny line. It was just like... Not even remotely subtle. Yeah, there's like, they're literally like, again, we were talking about the gut punch playbook. They're just literally, they're only doing that just so they, they can tear you down later. Turn to the camera and look you straight in the eye. Won't we? <laughs> <laughs> and linked to that, Chief has a dream and he expositions the whole conflict between dogs and foxes, which I thought was the best. Yeah. He's like, oh, was that a badger? No, no, it's a fox. I'm going to kill the fox. <laughs> and then Todd is like, what? We Todd, can't Todd, be by friends? The way. Look at Todd. Has there ever been a good Todd? Well, this is Todd with 1D. And I only know Todd's with 2Ds. So, so maybe like, 1D is good. 2Ds is bad. Rod and Todd. I think that's 2Ds, I think. I'm but not sure. still, even a 2D Todd. Has there been a, a good 2D Todd? You know, I'm like, going to type Todd into Google. Todd Coronation Street. Do you know who that is? I can't remember. There's Todd Cantwell, who I don't know who that is either. Oh, no, he plays for Norwich. Not a good Todd. Can't, uh, uh, Todd Mullis. Do you know who Todd Mullis is? Nope. Todd Mullis sentenced to life in prison for killing his wife. Do you want another point? <laughs> Further proof that all Todds are bad. Like, seriously, I can't think of a single good Todd. Todd to me just seems like he's going to be a jerk. Yeah. All Todds are jerks. Coming towards the end of the film, Gar, I thought the fight scene with the bear was well executed. It was it was thrilling and, and high-paced and it drove us to a really climactic conclusion. I quite liked how the bear was like, Hey you, you think you're the villain of the film, Gunman? No. I'm now the villain. That bear was terrifying. They they play a lot of the hits in this, by the way. They, they age via montage, which oh, is, yes. of course, a, a Disney classic. Which is, in fairness, different from aging via song. But yes. sometimes aging via song and montage are one, like, say, The Lion King, of course. Or Tarzan. Or Tarzan, indeed. Aging via montage is, is a very special Disney classic. I, for one, am aware of that trope, but I'm completely on board for it. Yes, especially with good songs. Uh, also, uh, of course, Fall in Love with One Glance. Oof. Wasn't a song this time. They didn't even give us a good song. No, and they even did the we're going to run around fields and whatever for a while, looking at each other forlorn and happy. Forlorn and happy are two different things. Literally polar opposites. But nonetheless. <laughs> Wrapping up on the story here, Gar, I respect that they stuck to the bittersweet ending. I feel like they'd find it hard to resist a more sugary ending in 2020. Like, Todd gets to go back to the farm and he they just... Like, he still is in the forest, but he comes back now and again and they're all friends and everything. Is I don't, I don't think it's that bittersweet. Like, he, he lives happily ever after with his fox lady. Yeah, but I, I think they accept that they can't be friends anymore. And that's sad. But they still help each other and save each other at the end. But it's different. They, they kind of acknowledge that life is complicated and hard and it's different and that we can in fact be racist and apart from each other that's why people watch fox there's like yes of course they should be separate at the end that's the way it should be yeah, segregation works <laughs> quickly to the music here we, we, we won't dwell on it because nicole does a fabulous job as always the songs here are cute but nothing memorable best of friends is the pick of the bunch i've been singing that all day actually as you said it has a very randy newman-esque vibe to it but it has a, a kind of a, one of those tunes that does worm its way into your head i listened to nicole's performance earlier and i, I didn't remember the song until then but now that I've heard it again, I'm like singing it to myself all time. Yeah, he was singing it coming into this to start recording the podcast. He was just nonchalantly singing it to himself because he can't get it out of his brain. As we noted, Gerard, there's a noticeable addition of a fully orchestrated score. Not common to date, but really does add to the film. They don't they don't use it too much because I, I imagine it was expensive. So there's a kind of a, a default score that's kind of a more folksy southern one, for want of a better term. And then a couple of big orchestral pieces in there just to ramp up the mood. But to pack a bunch. Uh, one note I had here, though, Gerard, the sound 
mixing for the voice performances felt a bit off to me. It, it doesn't blend with the, the score and the voices felt separate from their surroundings at times. That makes sense. They felt a bit hollow. And I, I think the bigger thing is I think the lip syncing was a little off sometimes. Yeah. Which always makes it feel a little disconnected. I did quite like the song uh, Widow Tweed sang when she was dropping her fox oh, off Oh, that's, that's a nice one as well. That's that's kind of a, a melancholic. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think that's a, a really nice sad moment where it's just like, you're my friend and you needed me. But it turns out I also needed you. Now and goodbye. Forever. And it's really sad. These aren't the lyrics. I'm, I'm, I'm approximating the lyrics of the song, but that's the, the, the basic message. And it is quite a sad, melancholy moment because it's like she's, she's given up her fox friend. Yeah. I, I, in fairness, I, I, I didn't remember that one, but now that you mentioned it, it, it is a nice moment in the film that really packs a, an emotional wallop. We did mention it while we were talking about voice actors. Tigger and Piglet are in this film. They are. Which is, I don't remember the, the names of the voice actors as my Yeah, we're not being, we're not being funny. Sorry, I'm distracted by the shadow of my hand on the wall. I'm a, I'm a child. And look at it. It's on the computer too. Oh, so many shadows. Uh, but yeah. Cat the, the, the voice actors that play Tigger and Piglet are in this film. But very weirdly, they're doing Tigger and Piglet. Yeah, down to the, the Tigger laugh. Yeah, it's like, woohoo! He's doing the Tigger. And like Piglet is doing like the very timid talking and, and stuttering over his words and a repeating himself thing. And it's like, like Sterling Holloway's been in a bunch of these films doing his Sterling Holloway poo voice, but he's not been like, oh, bother, should I get some honey? It's been degrees of poo. Yes, it's because that's just how he sounds. That's his voice. But it's it's very weird that they have the character ticks in there, that they have the woohoos and the, the, the weird stumbles. That's just a strange thing to do with different strange. characters. Yeah, it took me out of the movie at times because I found it distracting. Especially the, the Tigger laugh. And it's because it's not like Pooh has been... As I said, we watch these films back to back to back to back. But Pooh was four years earlier in this context. Uh, two movies. So like, it's not like Pooh is decades ago so people won't notice. It's like, this is just... We're just going to do the same thing. He would, like, even speculated that they were just reusing voice lines from Winnie the Pooh. He kind of felt like it because like it's, it's a very strange choice. You're like, oh, we want you to do this voice in this film. It's like, oh, I did a Disney film before. I'm just going to do that again. And like, not even the voice. Do, yeah, do the character ticks. There you go. It's, yeah. yeah, it was a very strange thing. Yeah. So for me, like, the characters don't sound like they're in the same place. Sometimes that also took me out of it. And the sound effects were a bit hollow sounding. They, they, they also weren't. I think the film missed a bit of ambient blending. And, and te- those techniques would improve as the years would go forward, of course. Fun fact to end on the music here, Gar. This was the last Disney film to have all the credits in the opening and only, say, at the end, uh, a Walt Disney production when the film was finished. Closing credits with pop songs and or instrumental music would be used from now on. And that's what we know today. I do, I'm, and like, I'm sure we'll get into the stapler of uh, famous musicians sings a version of one of the songs in the film. Ah, yes. The Michael Bolton version of Go the Distance. Today would be Ariana Grande. Yeah, someone like that singing a version of the, and it's usually an inferior version of the song and it's never quite the same. Though the Michael Bolton version of Go the Distance is quite good. I, I, I really like that, actually. It's on my, my Spotify playlist. So yeah, that's, that's the new Disney trend that's coming. Garrett, you'll be glad you hear it was much easier to watch this as an adult, but the theme still struck me as surprisingly relevant for her times. As I said, nobody is born with hatred or mistrust in their hearts. Young people are taught this way of thinking. The animation is pleasing to the eye for the most part and and seems to be leaving behind the shortcuts of the last two decades. The green shoots of the Disney Renaissance are beginning to show because the spring came, remember? It was a cute analogy. You didn't get it. It's fine. Very good, Ken. Good job, Backpat. Overall, this is an underrated Disney classic with characters you enjoy spending time with, a simple yet thought-provoking story, and beautiful old-school Disney visuals. Hmm. 
I don't know how I feel. You don't? You're on the fence? It's been a day, and, like, I don't think this film landed particularly powerfully with me, but I did, like, it's an enjoyable little film. So I'm still not sure where I am with it, which is a very good podcast takeaway. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> you come to for the kind of takes, you're like... You're still ruminating on it? Yeah, I don't think I've quite processed entirely how I feel about we should have waited a, a day to do the podcast maybe but maybe it'll take me weeks eventually i'll be like yeah i liked it but i don't th- uh, like i'm certainly not on the side that i hated it but i'm like is it particularly interesting minute to minute kinda it kind of wallows in itself in an interesting way where it's just like we're gonna just sit here with our characters but it has a few too many of the tropes for me it's like the fall in love in one glance stuff i'm just like oh yeah but just, I, I suppose at the same time like while the new animators were starting to assert their influences you know, they don't get rid of that stuff though that stuff is yeah still in modern Disney films don't you pretend like they worked this out that's what I'm saying like the the old way of doing things is still almost a, a pillar of Disney filmmaking to this day so there are some limitations to what you can do and how far you can deviate. And I, I like, well, no, there, there are none. You shouldn't have limited. But um, the it's just the way it's introduced so late in the film as well. It's like it, into the third act, they introduce the fall in love in one glance. And I'm like, oh. yeah. And the, and the film wouldn't have been any worse if they had removed that. They kind of shoehorned it in there, as you said. And like if, if the, the, the film fully focused on the conflict or the resolution of the conflict between Copper and Todd, it, it, it would have been enough. It didn't need the love angle. Yeah. I guess they might argue that you need somewhere for Todd to go like if he's just standing him by himself in the wild it might be a, and actually to your point I think that would have been actually a sadder ending that would have hit the melancholy more because he at least in this ending you know he's going off with his love he's not that bad off so yeah, maybe the film would have worked better I do take and this is actually the longest Disney film in a while I know it was a Fantasia was an hour and a half which I think yeah, is the longest today over, yeah. this this is an hour 24 which is about 10 minutes longer than the average recent films have been which have hit like 75 minutes on the button for I don't know a good like 10 films now this stage so yeah maybe if they trim that out they could have trimmed 10 minutes not that this film felt long mind you this film actually it, it was pretty briskly paced it went by pretty quick you didn't feel that extra 10 minutes certainly i didn't find myself watching the clock uh, that's for sure Garrett, not much on the legacy of the film itself but it did give rise to a generation of animators who are still very influential at the disney organization today and those people have driven much of the more recent successes as well tim burton didn't stick around in disney animation but went on to become a very successful filmmaker and director in his own right and would come back from for Alice in Wonderland. And as you say, he worked with them on several projects over the years, most recently the live action adaptation of Dumbo. So he's still a a Disney guy, but he he just marches to the beat of his own drum. There is, of course, The Fox and the Hound too. Yes, which is critically panned and said to very much just play the hits of the original. I'm looking at the, the plot synopsis for The Fox and the Hound 2 on Wikipedia is four paragraphs. Four pretty detailed paragraphs. It doesn't need to be that long. Apparently they meet, they go to the fair, they have some problems. There's other people around. There you go, Fox and the Hound too. I don't think the Fox and the Hound is in Kingdom Hearts, which we didn't mention, I don't think, for a few weeks. Uh, Winnie the Pooh has quite prominent placement in Kingdom Hearts. Uh, he has levels in, I think, all of the games that mm. the Hundred Acre Woods is a level in. What about the Rescuers? Uh, I don't know. That doesn't feature at all in Kingdom Hearts. I'm going to do a quick search for Fox and the Hound Kingdom Hearts, which, of course, I probably should have done before the podcast, but I'm going to do on the podcast. Uh, um, yeah, I don't think so. There's Todd and Cooper Kingdom Hearts fan fiction. Would you like that? <laughs> no, thanks. I think that's going to be uh, pornographic for my liking. I would think The Fox and the Hound would be a pretty cool world. Yeah, kind of all Disney films would, really, wouldn't they? Yeah, the, but uh, they do a nice job of setting the scene of the, the forest and the, the houses. And it's a nice it's a nice little compact world, but it feels like a, 
It has a sense of place. Kingdom Hearts is probably where a lot of my Pooh loves come from, actually. Because I think that would have been my first, like, prolonged exposure to Pooh. I would have had some exposure to Pooh in my youthful days. But the, he, as I said, a, a particularly big role in the Kingdom Hearts games. And the song, the do-do-do-do, is in Kingdom Hearts as well. So that's where I first heard that. Where the Winnie the Pooh duh thing came from, I think. Uh, was the, the, the genesis of that was in Kingdom Hearts 1. So, big fan of Kingdom Hearts and Winnie the Pooh. Clearly they're big fans of them too, because they put them in every game. There you go, Gar. I don't right. think Pooh's a playable character in any of them, though. Which is quite upsetting. Because in the first one, you go to to the Hundred Acre Wood, and it, like all the pages are missing, so you find the pages around the world to reassemble the books. I can't remember what is in the second one, and the third in King Hearts Three is just a place where there's a bunch of mini games, and you throw turnips at people. Okay, it's important to give these updates, so don't forget in future, okay? Yes, to keep people abreast on what is in Kingdom Hearts. What we what's next? I'm sure you'll mention it in like two minutes. Mention it in like two minutes, Gar. But mention it now, so I know whether it's Kingdom Hearts. Is it Black Cauldron? Yes. I don't know if that Kingdom Hearts. I'll have to look that up. I don't think it is. All right, Todds and Coppers, that's nearly it for the show this week. Our resident musical Fox Nicole is coming up in just a few moments with a song from the movie. It's always a highlight every week, so be sure to stick around for that after the credits. You can find new episodes of Magic by Design every Monday, where all magical podcasts are downloaded. Check out our website at magicbydesign.buzzsprout.com to find the full list of podcast providers. There, you'll also find all our previous episodes if you're catching up or feel like revisiting an old favourite. Magic by Design is also on all your favourite social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash magicbydesignpod, on Twitter at magicdesignpod, and on Insta at Magic by Design Pod. If you're a fan of the show, please do consider giving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice, share the podcast on your socials, or recommend the show to a fellow Disney fan. If you don't give us a five-star review, our friendship may be changed forever, much like Todd and Copper at the end of the movie. We don't want that, Gar. We'll be podcast hosts forever, won't we, Ken? Sure, Gar. We'll be back next week at the same time, same place, with Disney's 25th animated feature, The Black Cauldron. But until then, stay safe and remember... Forever is a long, long time, and time has a way of changing things. Thanks, Big Mama. Now then, Nicole is here to sing us out with Best of Friends from The Fox and the Hound, and like a bloodhound, she sniffed out some fun facts about the music of the film. This is in no way a comment on Nicole's appearance. The similarities end with her stellar investigative skills. Please don't kill me. Did you go for bloodhound instead of basset hound so that you wouldn't suggest she has big ears? Yes, that's exactly why. (laughs) Let's get out of here before she kills me. Thanks for listening, and take it away, Nicole. Hello Disney fans, it's me, your musical correspondent Nicole, coming to you live from my bedroom. This week, a friendship like no other is formed in The Fox and the Hound. The memorable musical score was composed by Buddy Baker, who conducted the 55-piece orchestra heard on the soundtrack. Baker is known as one of Disney's most prolific music men, composing over 200 scores for motion pictures, TV and theme parks. The songs were composed by collaborators Richard O. Johnston and Stan Fidel, lone songwriter Jim Stafford, and writing duo Richard Rich and Jeffrey C. Patch. Richard O. Johnston and Stan Fidel composed the first song featured on the soundtrack, Best of Friends. Interestingly, Richard O. Johnston is the son of legendary Disney animator Ollie Johnston. This week, I'm taking a look at the song Best of Friends sung by the incredible Pearl Bailey as the caring owl Big Mama. This piece celebrates the long-time friendship and artistic collaboration of Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas. Here's my version. I hope you enjoy it. When you're the best of friends Having so much fun together 
You're not even aware You're such a funny pair You're the best of friends Life's a happy game You could clown around forever Neither one of you sees Your natural boundaries Life's one happy game If only the world wouldn't get in your way If only people would just let you play They say you're fucking fools You're breaking all the rules They can't understand The magic of your wonderland And you're the best of friends Sharing all that you discover When these moments have passed Will that friendship last? Who can say there's a way? Oh, I hope, I hope it never ends Cause you're